We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. And away we go. Episode... 104 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. Just seven days now remain until the start of Washington football team training camp. Football is coming. Football is around the corner. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa football is on his sleigh and on his way, the month-and-a-half-long break between the end of off-season practices and the start of training camp is winding down. We are making it through, people. It's funny. This is supposedly a slow time of year, but every day there's a lot to get into. I can't even take actual vacations because every week has stuff. Uh, this week, no exception. And so on the show, my friends, we will be discussing many exciting things. We will be discussing the Nationals' offensive eruption on Monday night, an 18-1 spanking of the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. Here's all you need to know about the game. John Lester tossed seven shutout innings and had two hits, including a two-run homer. John Lester was Shohei Otani 
on Monday night. Much more on a great night at Nationals Park coming up next segment. We will be discussing the introductory press conference for the Wizards' new head coach, Wes Unsell Jr. You know by now that I'm in favor of the hiring. I have to say I liked, I really liked a lot of what we heard on Monday afternoon. Look, who knows if Wes Unsell Jr. as Wizards' head coach works out, but this to me is a hiring that makes a lot of sense. And Wes brings a lot to the table. And no, none of this has to do with his last name. Perhaps Wes Unseld Jr.'s tenure as Wizards head coach goes as well as Jim Lynam's tenure as Bullets head coach, or Gar Hurd's tenure as Wizards head coach, or Leonard Hamilton's tenure as Wizards head coach, or maybe, just maybe, Wes Unseld Jr. truly gets this thing turned around. Stop laughing, okay? Stop laughing. We can be optimistic on a Tuesday, okay? West Jr. could end up turning things around. Also on this show, we will talk about the Washington football team, which on Monday announced sad news, the passing of Dan Snyder's mother, Arlette Snyder. I want to discuss a football-related aspect of the fallout of her passing. I will continue my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp by giving you the top three training camp questions for Washington at corner. Yes, cornerback is our position group that is highlighted on this Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. And I'll talk some Orioles who, believe it or not, now have won three straight. Who exactly is Spencer Watkins and what are we to make of what this guy is doing. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Mr. Who on something that we talked about on Monday's installment of the podcast, episode 103. How realistic is Washington cutting John Bostic? If you're thinking about potential surprise cuts during training camp or when Washington sets its season opening roster, Bostic's is a name to be thinking about. So I talked about this during my position group by position group breakdown segment on the pod on Monday show as I talk linebackers. Tweeted Mr. Who, Bostic will be a backup by season's end. Jamin, as in Jamin Davis, will be the middle linebacker. Kalik, as in Kalik Hudson, will be the weak side linebacker, the will. And Holcomb, as in Cole Holcomb, will be the strong side linebacker, or the Sam. See, the great Ken Beatrice back in the day on local sports talk radio used to always say those positions in great ways. The Mike, the Will, and the Sam. Who's your Sam going to be? Maybe Cole Holcomb ends up being our Sam. But I tell you what, Mr. Wu, the scenario that you just outlined, uh, this would be a good scenario because this would mean that young talent is rising up, right? Would mean that Jamin Davis is legit, would mean that Kalik Hudson is emerging. Mr. Who, by the way, you're not related to Ric Flair, are you? Hogan, I'm waiting! Woo! Yeah, I mean, when I hear Wu, when I hear even Mr. Who, I'm thinking about the all-time Wu, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Woo! Yeah, Ric Flair, who, by the way, yelled at me during a promo at US Air Arena in July 1996, I was there for WCW Nitro, 
and Ric Flair, during a promo, stared right at me while I was in the stands, and he asked me, he said, do you want to go? Do you want to go? And I said, Nate, please. I started backing down like a nature boy used to do to Sting and Dusty Rhodes and all the greats in the NWA slash WCW. But I was happy to put Nate over. I was happy to get Ric Flair even more over. Geez, that was 25 years ago, <laughs> the summer of 96. Speaking of pro wrestling, John Cena is back. That was good to see. Big pop for Cena's return on WWE's Money in the Bank pay-per-view on Sunday night. John Cena and his jean shorts. You know, John Cena now is 44, and he's still repping the jean shorts, still repping the jorts. I actually saw, by the way, recently that jean shorts supposedly are making a comeback. Did you see this? Jean shorts making a comeback. I don't know how true this is, but if this is true, uh, you can consider me out, okay? If jean shorts, if jorts are actually making a comeback, uh, I'm out on that, all right? And, and listen, if you love your jorts, knock yourself out, okay? We don't judge people on the Al Galdi podcast. But for me, uh, I don't think jorts are the way I want to go in 2021. If jorts are coming back, consider me uh, <laughs> consider me like Montez Sweat with getting a COVID-19 vaccination, okay? I'm out, all right? I'm good. Maybe Ron Rivera, in fact, should use the threat of jorts as an incentive to get Washington players to get vaccinated for COVID-19. You know, get your shots or you have to wear jorts. I don't know, maybe something like that could work. Anyway, the Nationals, uh, they made the Marlins worthy of having to wear jorts on Monday night. I have said many times that the Nationals have had a very strange 2021 season. Nothing captures that better than the last few days. Put aside all of the chaos. Put aside the game on Saturday night that was suspended due to gunfire outside of Nationals Park. Put aside the Starling Castro and F.P. Santangelo controversies. The Nats on Friday night lost to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park 24-8. The Nats on Monday night beat the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park 18-1. I don't know that anything encapsulates the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the 2021 Nats more than that. The two-faced Nats of 2021. Sometimes they look so pretty and sometimes they look gruesome. And of course, there's a big difference between the Padres and the Marlins. The Padres are great. The Marlins are bad. And maybe that's the tell regarding the Nats this season. They're good enough to beat bad teams, but not good enough to beat great teams. That's the sign of a mediocre team, right? And mediocre is what I thought that the Nats were coming into this season. But the thing is, in sports, you don't have to be great to do great. And now that the Nats are through their gauntlet of games against the mighty National League West, against the likes of the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants and the San Diego Padres, we have a softening and the schedule, a softening with which the Nats can pile up wins. And perhaps that started on Monday night. An 18-1 smashing of the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series. Davey Martinez, the boys, they were mashing. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, proud of the boys, not the proud boys. That's something different, but proud of the boys. Uh, The Nats scored 18 runs on Monday night. 18 runs, totaled 18 hits, including six homers, worked two walks, went nine for 13, 
with runners in scoring position and absolutely slaughtered ex-Nat Ross Detweiler. Yes, Ross Detweiler is still in the majors. He is a reliever for the Marlins. He served as the Marlins opener on Monday night, and he allowed eight runs and got just three outs. He gave up four homers. He was atrocious. You know, it's funny. I think this gets forgotten with Detweiler. The Nats took Detweiler with a top 10 pick in a draft. The Nats took Detweiler with the number six pick in the 2007 MLB draft. Things did not work out for him with the Nats, but he is still pitching in the majors. He has had himself a career. This is his age 35 season, but he got filleted on Monday night. Your offensive heroes for the Nats, there were many. You start with Juan Soto, who is on some kind of tear right now. Starting right fielder, number three batter, three for four with two homers, a double, and a walk. Soto smashing a two-run opposite field homer to left field off Detweiler in a Nationals four-run first inning, the homer going a projected 369 feet per stat cast. Soto smacking an opposite field double to left field off Marlins reliever and former Orioles pitcher David Hess in the Nats' six-run second inning. And if you're listening right now and you're an Orioles fan, or at the very least you have followed the Orioles, you are by no means surprised that David Hess came into a game and gave up an extra base hit. Soto drew a leadoff six-pitch walk in the bottom of the fourth, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And Soto launched a one-out three-run homer to left center field off Marlins catcher and ex-Nat Sandy Leone in the Nats' six-run seventh inning for an 18-0 Nats lead, that homer going a projected 393 feet per stat cast. Yes, we reached the point of the game at which a position player was pitching. The position player just happened to be a former Nationals catcher, Sandy Leone. So you had all kinds of yesteryear Nats on display for the Marlins on Monday night. Ross Detweiler was the starting pitcher. Sandy Leone ended up being used as a reliever. Soto homered off both those guys. And did you notice a theme to Soto's extra base hits on Monday night? opposite field. This is what Juan Soto does when he's on a run. Hits the ball to left field. Goes oppo, and oppo he went on Monday night. Two-run opposite field homer to left field in the Nats' four-run first. Opposite field double to left field in the Nats' six-run second. And then a pseudo-oppo shot off Sandy Leone. That went out three-run homer. That was to left center field in that six-run seventh inning. Soto now has five home runs in four games since the All-Star break, since the Home Run Derby. This thing of the Home Run Derby fixing Soto as opposed to ruining Soto is very much a thing. And who knows how legit it is. Maybe it's placebo. Maybe it's coincidence. You know, maybe this is more correlation than causation. But whatever the case may be, since the Home Run Derby, Juan Soto is hitting bombs. Again, five home runs in four games since the All-Star break. Trey Turner had a big game on Monday night. Your starting shortstop and number two batter, two for four with a three-run homer and an RBI triple, and he got those hits over the first two innings. So at the end of two innings, Trey Turner had a three-run homer and an RBI triple. He was threatening to hit for another cycle in this game after two innings. Didn't end up getting there, but the threat was there. Trey with an RBI triple to the left field corner on a 1-2 pitch from Ross Detweiler in that Nats four-run first. And Trey, a full count three-run homer on a bomb to left field off Detweiler in that Nats six-run second inning, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. The homer going a projected 428 feet 
for StatCast. You know, Trey doesn't always come off like the guy who can hit bombs, but that sure was a bomb on Monday night. Again, it projected 428 feet. Josh Bell was in that starting first baseman and cleanup batter. He only had one hit, but the one, a moonshot, a full count solo homer to left field off Detweiler as Bell hit back-to-back homers with Soto in that Nats four-run first. And that homer really was something else. It landed near the top of section 104, truthfully landed near the concourse. The homer measured as having gone and projected 446 feet per stat cast. I mean, if you watch the Nats, you know, Josh Bell is built like a tank, so he's capable of doing this, but he launched that baseball on Monday night. I tell you, Nationals Park right now is a bandbox. Nationals Park right now is playing, you know, like Coors Field in Denver or something like that with the way baseballs are flying out of the park. We see this happen almost every summer when the weather heats up, when the air becomes that classic summer air, the offensive environment at Nationals Park changes. And Nats Park goes from being, you know, a pretty honest park, a pretty neutral park to being a hitter's haven. And we've seen that here over these last few weeks. How about Tres Barrera? Tres Barrera was in on the act on Monday night. He was in that starting catcher and number eight batter, two for five with a homer and a single, a leadoff first pitch homer to left center field off, you guessed it, Ross Detweiler, this coming in the Nats' sixth run second inning. The homer, Barrera's first career major league regular season homer, when it projected 420 feet per stat cast. So again, another 400 plus foot homer. Barrera also had a one out single in the Nats' sixth run seventh inning. You know, right now the Nats are basically closing their eyes and throwing darts at a board to figure out who the team's starting catcher is going to be game in, game out with both Jan Gomes and Alex Avila on the 10-day injured list, right? We've seen Jackson Reitz out there. We've seen Rene Rivera out there. But more recently, we've seen Tres Barrera out there. And I think Tres Barrera should be the guy for now. I mean, until Gomes or Avila is back, Barrera's showing he can do some things. He can at least hit. And he certainly hit on Monday night. Also, Gerardo Porra had himself a good game. He was the Nats starting left fielder at number seven batter, three for five with a double and two singles. He had a two-out RBI single in the Nats six run second. He had a one-out single in the Nats two run fifth, despite having been down at a count of 1.12. And Parra had a one-out double on an 0-2 pitch in that Nats six run seventh inning. And Alcides Escobar had another game in which he got on base a bunch. He was again the Nats starting second baseman at number one batter. He reached base four times, two for three, with two singles, a walk, and a hit-by-pitch. He had a leadoff single on a 1-2 pitch in the Nats' four-run first. He drew a hit-by-pitch in the Nats' six-run second. He drew a two-out full-count walk in the bottom of the third, and he had a one-out single in the Nats' six-run seventh inning. The Nats' hitting has been really good over the four games since the All-Star break. And keep in mind that this is happening as the Nats remain without a number of key position players. I mean, I mentioned both Jan Gomes and Alex Avila still being on the 10-day injured list. Of course, Kyle Schwarber is still on the 10-day IL with his right hamstring strain. And Starling Castro is out. Uh, He's on administrative leave, was put on that by Major League Baseball on Friday for this domestic violence allegation. But as all these guys are out, the Nats offense has actually been just fine. The pitching has been much more the problem than the hitting for the Nationals recently. But speaking of the pitching, the Nats starting pitching was outstanding on Monday night. And the source of that starting pitching was John Lester. John Lester, a much needed great start on Monday night. He was outstanding. Let me repeat that. 
John Lester was outstanding on Monday night. We had a similar conversation regarding Matt Harvey of the Orioles on Monday's show. What's going on here? Matt Harvey for the O's on Sunday afternoon, John Lester for the Nats on Monday night. Two guys, each of whom had looked awful, but each of whom now has been terrific in his last start. And Lester in this 18-1 win over the Marlins in Nationals Park on Monday night, seven scoreless innings. Yes, seven shutout innings for John Lester. He had seven strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up six hits, two doubles, and four singles. He threw strikes, 59 strikes versus 22 balls on 81 pitches. Lester was staked to a 10-0 lead at the end of two innings. And so he did exactly what a veteran pitcher should do in such a game. Work quickly, work efficiently, work effectively. He did those things. He did exactly what a pitcher should do when he's handed a 10-0 lead after two innings. You had to wonder, is John Lester capable of doing those things? Well, clearly he still is. I mean, and I give him full credit for that. I mean, Lester came into the game having been an absolute mess. Over his last four starts, he had allowed 25 runs, 17 earned in 13 and a third innings. And he goes out there on Monday night and he pitches really well. Now, does this mean anything moving forward? I don't know. I'm not willing to say that it does. Uh, It should be noted. The Marlins are one of the worst hitting teams in the majors. The Marlins came into the game 25th out of 30 major league teams in weighted runs created plus at 89. And the Marlins on Monday put two key position players on the 10-day injured list in Jazz Chisholm Jr., who torched the Nats in the last series that these two teams played against each other, and Garrett Cooper. So no doubt. It's not like John Lester pitched well against the Giants on Monday night or pitched well against the Houston Astros on Monday night. So I'm not going to sit here and say anything along the lines of John Lester is fixed or John Lester is back or John Lester can be counted on moving forward. But you didn't know what to think with Lester going into this game on Monday night. And so to see him pitch as he did was really cool. And to see him hit as he did was maybe even better. John Lester had two hits on Monday night including a homer. Who says that Davey Martinez was wrong for having used Lester as a pinch hitter? Galdi, you idiot. See how wrong you were. Uh, Lester had a single in the Nats' sixth run second, and Lester belted a two-out, two-run homer in the bottom of the fifth for a 12-0 Nats lead. And the homer was some shot. It was to center field. It went a projected 419 feet for StatCast. Lester, at 37 years old, became the oldest pitcher to homer in a major league regular season game since Bartolo Colon homered in May 2016 at 42 years old. And the Bartolo homer is an all-time classic. It's one of the great highlights in MLB over the last decade. Lester's homer made him the oldest pitcher to homer in the regular season since the all-time Bartolo homer in May of 2016. Uh, In terms of the bullpen usage on Monday night, Davey Martinez did use two relievers, Wander Suero and Jeffrey Rodriguez. Suero did give up a run. It was Suero who ruined the shutout bid. He allowed a run in the top of the eighth on a one-out solo homer by Miguel Rojas. And Jeffrey Rodriguez, Mr. Mop-Up Man for Davey Martinez, uh, Jeffrey Rodriguez, J-Rod, as I will call him, he tossed a scoreless ninth despite giving up a couple of singles. So game two for the Nats against the Marlins, Tuesday night at 7.05. Paolo Espino versus lefty Trevor Rogers, who's having a really good season. 18 starts 
an ERA of 231. When it comes to my guy, Paolo, look, the truth is, since Paolo peaked, uh, Paolo has not been the same guy. So the peak of Paolo came in the Nats' 8-4 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on June 28th in that makeup game. Paolo in that game, five scoreless innings in a spot start. He exited that game with an ERA of 202 over 35 and two-thirds innings this season. But Paolo over his last three appearances, over his three appearances since that game, not good. Nine runs in 10 and a third innings. And the reality is, in fact, worse than that because the last time we saw Paolo was in that 24-8 loss to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park on Friday night. Paolo came into the game with the bases loaded, two outs, and the Nats trailing 6-3 in the top of the second. And what did he do? He gave up a two-out grand slam to the first batter he faced, Will Myers, on a bomb to left field for a 10-3 Padres lead. So Paolo allowed inherited runners to score in addition to allowing other guys to score in that game. So it's not been very good for Paolo here lately. We'll see what he can do, though, against, again, a bad offensive team that's reeling right now from an injury standpoint. But you know what? The Nats have dealt with more than their share of injuries recently. So the Nats don't have to apologize for anything. Good to get that win on Monday night. The Nats now on the season are 44 and 49. Still six games behind the National League East leading New York Mets, who won a war at the Cincinnati Reds on Monday night. A 15-11-11 inning win at the Reds. But how about the Nats' run differential? Boy, did that 18-1 win over the Marlins do wonders for the Nats' run differential. The Nats' run differential on the season went from minus 36 to minus 19 with that victory on Monday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great, too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com bluewire. 
and Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. All right, so we on Monday afternoon had the introductory press conference for Wes Unsell Jr. as Wizards head coach. He is the 25th head coach in franchise history, as I detailed on Monday's installment of the podcast, episode 103. Wes Unsell Jr. is the guy who I wanted to get this job. I've been a Bullet slash Wizards fan my entire sports fan life. My basketball team frustrates me. My basketball team aggravates me. But my basketball team is my team and will always be my team. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team. And I'm excited to have Wes Unsell Jr. as Wizards head coach. So the press conference featured Wizards owner Ted Leonsis, Wizards general manager Tommy Shepard, and Wes Unsell Jr. And nothing to me stood out more than Ted, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, taking a shot at the Wizards' former head coach, Scott Brooks. So the Wizards are believed to have interviewed or at least considered at least 11 different candidates for head coach. All 11 of these candidates were NBA assistant coaches. This was Ted on Monday afternoon on going with a first-time NBA head coach who has been working as an NBA assistant coach as opposed to going with a retread NBA head coach. And tell me that this isn't at least a slight dig at Scott Brooks. Here you go. What I'll say is that the NBA is in great, great hands. Um, Every single person that we met and talked to was outstanding. And you've seen that a lot of assistant coaches are taking the next step, um, especially this summer. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, This is a very, very demanding job. And sometimes when you're a head coach and a second and third time head coach, um, I don't think you work as hard. I think you rely on your assistant coaches. And what I found with the interviews and especially in talking with Wes, how they do the game planning, they know the players, they know the tendencies, and they have to work really, really hard to prepare for each and every game. And I I looked at our team, and there were times when I thought we lost games that we shouldn't have. Um, Yes, defensively, but I just think having a work ethic and a demanding style will be a really, really good um, point of differentiation for us. The, The players all in the exit interviews, when we talked to them about what we were lacking and how we can improve. They talked about the little things. They talked about defensive intensity. They talked about communications. Uh, when we talked to Wes, like, what's the what's the key to better defense? It's um, hard work, game planning, communications. All right, so how about what Ted said a little earlier in that cut, that Ted believes, and I think rightly so, That what you see sometimes, maybe many times, with retread head coaches, and this isn't just an NBA thing in my opinion, is that the fire in the ballet is no longer there. You know, that these guys have been there, done that, they're kind of jaded toward things. Maybe they're just still in the coaching game for the paychecks, and these guys don't work it hard. I mean, again, here's what Ted said. 
Sometimes when you're a head coach and a second and third time head coach, um, I don't think you work as hard. I think you rely on your assistant coaches. <laughs> yeah, Ted said that. Uh, Scott Brooks was a second time head coach. He was the head coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder, and then he was the head coach of the Wizards. Now, again, was Ted trying to take a shot at Scott Brooks? Who knows? It certainly came off as at least a slight jab at Scott Brooks. It's hard to ignore Ted Leonsis saying that at that press conference on Monday afternoon. But like I said, I do think there's a lot of truth in that. I think it's human nature. You know, once you've had success in one stop, it's hard to duplicate the fire within that led to that initial success when you're in another stop. I, you know, I just think that a lot of people are wired that way. The truly special ones aren't. But there's a reason that so few head coaches in the NBA, in the NFL, have had success in multiple stops. Um, and like, I'm talking like real success, like championship level success. The list of guys who've been able to do that is quite small. For me, nothing mattered more in the Wizards head coaching search than finding a head coach who will get the Wizards to man up and D up, who will get the Wizards to consistently play defense at a high level. Wes Unsell Jr. was an assistant coach for the Denver Nuggets for six seasons, 2015-2016 through 2020-2021. And Wes got the Nuggets to be a good defensive team. Wes oversaw the Nuggets' defensive game plans. The Nuggets this past regular season were 11th in the NBA in defensive rating, which is points allowed per 100 possessions per NBA.com. For comparison's sake, the Wizards in four of Scott Brooks's five regular seasons as Wizards head coach were 20th or worse in the 30-team NBA in defensive rating. Wes on Monday afternoon on getting the Wizards to be better defensively. The defensive side of the ball has been an issue here. Um, and that's an area where I've, I've been charged with for the past five seasons. And I've, we've seen marketable improvement in that area. Um, and it, it boils down to buy-in and commitment. And I think uh, all parties involved, including the players, they, they know for us to take that next step to uh, really get to the level which we think we uh, can attain, it's going to take that, that commitment to uh, that side of the ball. Yes, it is. There's not a doubt in my mind about that. If you want to have meaningful runs in NBA postseasons, you've got to be really good defensively. The Wizards have not been really good defensively in way too long. Something that came up a bunch regarding Wes Unsell Jr. at his introductory press conference as Wizards head coach on Monday afternoon, his preparation. Again, that perhaps stands out off what Ted said in taking that potential jab at Scott Brooks. But here was Ted on Wes Unsell Jr. being a defensive-minded coach and a detail-oriented coach and on Wes's last name, not having had much to do with him getting the job of Wizards head coach. Wes's focus on uh, defense and game planning and all of the little things, all of the details that get you to win a couple of more games every year because you're out preparing the other team uh, really gave great comfort to everyone in our ownership group that this was a good move. And, you know, while I'm so thrilled and honored that we have Wes here. Um, it wasn't because of the legacy here. It was because of the process and the um, 
the game planning and the reviewing of the film together, and uh, Wes was just incredibly impressive with how um, relevant his understanding of what we needed and what we would do differently. So sometimes I say with media and these events, you have uh, collateral damage on things uh, that Connie and the whole family are here. We have uh, collateral goodness. Uh, <laughs> but, but we're here to win ball games and do better than we did last season. Yeah, I was glad to hear that. I was glad to hear Ted Leonsis emphasize that who Wes Unsell Jr.'s dad was had little, if anything, to do with Wes Unsell Jr. being hired as Wizards head coach. All due respect to the great Wes Unsell Sr., nobody is moved by Wes Unsell Jr. having been Wes Unsell Sr.'s son. And what I mean by that is Wizards fans, and I'm one of them, we just want the team to be good. We just want the team to win. We're tired of this team having not made it past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. If the head coach who gets the team to be good, if the head coach who gets the team past the second round of the NBA playoffs for the first time since 1979 just happens to be the son of the greatest player in franchise history, fine, great, you know, that's dandy. But that's not what this head coach hiring is about. And like I said on Monday's show, you have to be in your mid to late 40s, if not 50s, to have any memories of Wes Unseld Sr. as a player for the Bullets. You're appealing to only older fans if, in fact, you're hiring Wes Unseld Jr. because of his last name. And I think pretty clearly, that's not what the Wizards did here. Wes Unseld Sr., I do believe, is the greatest player in Bullets slash Wizards history. And he should be fondly remembered. There's no question about that. But you don't hire his son because he happens to be Wes Unseld Sr.'s son. I I think everyone's on board with that, and I was glad that that was made crystal clear by Ted Leonsis at that press conference on Monday afternoon. One more cut for you. Tommy Shepard on Wes Unseld Jr.'s preparation, his defensive aptitude, and him working well with players. Well, I think I, I can't say enough about how meticulous Wes is as, a, as he prepares for games. We've, we've done, uh, we, we worked together so long ago that really it was kind of getting reintroduced to each other in our workflow as we went through the process and through the interviews. And the one thing that always stood out with Wes is his intelligence about the game, where the game's headed the modern NBA, and certainly his, his proficiency on the defensive side of the ball, which is an area that we absolutely must address immediately. Those are something that's an area we know we can control and get better immediately, and I think that's something he'll deliver on. But really, his, his ability to manage the staff, his ability to have great, fantastic relationships with players. You know, when you look at his career, not just the time he was, certainly when he was in D.C., but he, he worked with Steph Curry and Clay Thompson when they were young, with Lucevic, Tobias Harris, Oladipo when he was in Orlando, and certainly you look at the, the MVP season that Jokic had, and Jokic was begging him not to leave Denver. Um, <laughs> you know, the players, Jamal Murray, all the different players that he touched there. And certainly it's a, it's a collaborative group. But when players call you to tell you about you should hire this guy unsolicited, that's pretty impressive to me. And I, I can't say enough about the, the background that we did on everybody that we, that we uh, interviewed with. But as we kept laying out our process and what we really wanted from our head coach, it just all the roads kind of led back to West Jr., Very excited to have him here. I am too. You know, we all know that the NBA is a player's league. Right or wrong, it matters a lot how Wes Unsell Jr. gets along with Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. And every indication is that Wes Unsell Jr. is great at relating with players, seeking players' input, and maximizing 
players' talent. And now comes the hardest part of this offseason for the Wizards, adding to their talent in a substantial way, finding a third major piece to upgrade the roster to where it's no longer a realistic best-case scenario roster of, say, the number four seed in the Eastern Conference. And that may be generous. If the Wizards aren't trading Bradley Beal this offseason with him being able to opt out of his contract next offseason, then this offseason needs to be about building up the roster and giving Beal every reason to stay beyond this season. And not because Beal is some elite level NBA superstar. He's not, but he is really good. He is a very valuable asset. And so if you're not going to trade him, if you're not going to trade the asset, then that means that you better be keeping him. You better be keeping the asset because losing him, losing the asset next offseason in free agency or in some side and trade deal in which you get pennies on the dollar is the worst case scenario. Before we get back to the position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp by talking corner, I did want to talk about the implications of something that the Washington football team announced on Monday. Washington on Monday announced the passing of Dan Snyder's mom, Arlette Snyder. Read the statement, quote, with profound sadness, the Washington football team announces the passing of Mrs. Arlette Snyder, surrounded by her loving family. Mrs. Snyder was a kind, gentle, and generous woman who was loved and greatly admired by all who knew her. She will be deeply missed and forever in our hearts. The Snyder family requests that their privacy be respected as they grieve the passing of their mother and grandmother. End quote. Now, I will tell you, because we are nothing if not honest on the Al Galdi podcast. We do not tolerate fake news on this show. Uh, I heard about Dan's mom having died more than a week ago. Uh, My understanding is that she died a while ago. I was never just going to blab that out on this podcast. That's not my place to publicize the death of an elderly woman just because she's the mom of a prominent person in sports, especially when the family clearly wasn't ready to announce her death. But the death now is out there. There will be no jokes, there will be no drops, there will be no ridicule of Dan Snyder on this installment of the podcast. The guy's mom died. We can take a break from our uh, usual tomfoolery. But from a practical football standpoint, I do want to raise this issue. Arlette Snyder was a minority owner of the Washington football team. Dan this offseason, of course, bought out the disgruntled minority owners. Dan won his battle with Dwight Shore, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith by buying them out at a discounted price of a reported $875 million with a reported $450 million debt waiver for which the NFL's finance committee made a special exemption. But contrary to what was said and written a bunch, Dan, in doing this, did not become 100% owner of the Washington football team. His mom and sister were minority owners. The new breakdown of the Washington football team's ownership group was Dan Snyder owning 80.958% of the team, Michelle Snyder, Dan's sister, owning 12.552% of the team, and Arlette Snyder, Dan's mother, owning 6.489% of the team. Well, now sadly, Arlette Snyder has died. And not to be a jerk, not to trivialize her death, But what happens to her 6.489% of the team? I would assume that that gets passed down to Dan and his sister, Michelle. 
Although, as we learned with Jack Kent Cook, never assume anything when it comes to an owner leaving his or her stake in a team to his or her children. Remember, Jack Kent Cook did not leave the skins to his son, John Kent Cook. The entire course of the history of the team would be different had Jack Kent Cook simply left the team to his son, John Kent Cook. You ever think about that? If JKC had just left the team to his son, another JKC, uh, what would have happened? What would the last 20 plus years of our franchise have looked like? It's complicated why Jack Kent Cook didn't just leave the team to his son, John Kent Cook, but Jack did not leave the team to his son, John Kent Cook. Anyway, chances are Dan and Michelle will split or let 6.489%. Maybe Dan gets all of that. Maybe Dan gets none of that and Michelle gets all of that. But this is worth noting. Dan Snyder now may well be gaining even more majority ownership of the Washington football team. I've talked about how Dan keeps winning this offseason. I would never categorize his mom dying as a win or let Snyder dying is sad. And I do feel sympathy for the Snyder family. I mean that. But just from purely a practical football standpoint, Dan now may well be becoming even more powerful in an offseason in which he already remarkably has become more powerful. All right, my friends, let's get to it. Our countdown to Washington football team training camp, because remember, it is the final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, that's right. It is the final countdown. Washington football team training camp will begin one week from today. This installment of the Al Galdi podcast is for Tuesday, July 20th. It is on Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond that we will have the start of Washington football team training camp, which will be taking place in Richmond July 27th through July 31st. Then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. And so I am giving to you a position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp. We go in depth on one position group each show. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding injury, excluding does everyone stay healthy? That is a question for every position group. And these are questions for training camp, questions to which we'll have answers by the end of training camp. Not questions for the upcoming season, questions for camp. Episode 100, I talk defensive line. Episode 101, I talk tight end. Episode 102, I talked offensive line. On Monday's show, episode 103, I talked linebacker. And now, on this episode 104, we talk corner. Maybe, possibly, the most important position on defense in today's NFL. This actually has become a big debate in recent years. Does corner now matter more than edge rusher in today's pass-happy NFL. The idea being that even the best pass rushing teams only generate pressure around 30% of the time. A corner's coverage matters far more than 30% of the time. Anyway, something to think about. We can all agree, though, that corner matters a lot. So here we go. The top three training camp questions for the Washington football team at corner. Question number one for the Washington football team at corner in training camp. Is there quality depth behind William Jackson III and Kendall Fuller. Washington's top two corners are set in stone. You could argue that Washington's top three corners are set because Jimmy Moreland had a very good 2020, 
More on him in moments. But what is concerning about Washington is what it has beyond those three guys at corner. Now, a man who offers hope in this regard is Benjamin St. Juice. Washington, with its first third-round pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, took St. Juice, a corner out of Minnesota. Washington acquired the third-round pick that was used to take St. Juice in the Trent Williams trade. So keep that in mind. Benjamin St. Juice is a function of the Trent Williams trade. And as was said in a skit on Saturday Night Live years ago, you likey the juice? Yeah, I likey the juice. You like the juice, eh? <laughs> yeah, you know. The juice is good, eh? Yeah, I likey the juice. There's a lot to likey with the juice. Washington lists St. Juice as being 6'3 and 200 pounds. St. Juice gives Washington size and length at corner. Compare that height, again, 6'3", with the heights of Washington's top three corners. William Jackson III is listed by Washington as being six feet tall. Kendall Fuller is listed by Washington as being 5'11". Jimmy Moreland is listed by Washington as being 5'11". But it's not just size that St. Juice brings to the table. He offers a skill set that lends itself to him being capable of excelling in man coverage. Benjamin St. Juice isn't overly fast, but he is tall, he is long, and he is physical. He also has an interesting background. He's from Montreal. He began his collegiate career at Michigan, played in his 2017 true freshman season, though in just three games, then redshirted in 2018 due to a hamstring injury, then transferred to Minnesota as a graduate transfer in 2019 and played for the Gophers in 2019 and 2020. I'm excited to see what Benjamin St. Juice can do. I could see him being a star of training camp and the preseason. He's the kind of guy who you could see really flashing and becoming a fan favorite as camp and the preseason go on. Also offering hope for quality depth at corner is Daryl Roberts. Washington on March 26th announced the signing of Roberts as an unrestricted free agent. The 2021 season will be his age 31 season, so he is an older player. Roberts spent the 2020 season playing for the Detroit Lions. He missed five games due to injury, four games due to hip and groin injuries, and then another game due to a hip injury. But Roberts, over his 11 games, played on at least 60% of the Lions' defensive snaps six times, though he finished with an overall grade for pro football focus of just 54.3. Roberts was taken by the New England Patriots in the seventh round of the 2015 NFL Draft at a Marshall. He spent all of his 2015 rookie season on the Pats reserve slash injured list, was released in the Pats cut down to 53 for the 2016 season, then was claimed off waivers by the New York Jets in September 2016 and ended up playing for the Jets for four seasons, 2016 through 2019. And he played quite a bit for the Jets, 56 regular season games, including 26 starts. And Daryl Roberts offers, wait for it, Position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Position flex. Roberts has played outside corner, slot corner, free safety, and box safety. Daryl Roberts, truthfully, is a defensive back. He's not just a corner. For pro football focus, Roberts in the 2020 regular season for the Lions played 49.9% of his defensive snaps at slot corner, 41.6% of his defensive snaps at outside corner. Now, Washington also has Greg Stroman and Danny Johnson at corner, among others. But Stroman missed most of last season due to injury. Washington placed him on its reserve slash injured list last October 16th due to a foot injury. And Johnson did not play on a single defensive snap last season. 
Johnson in the 2020 season played in 14 regular season games and in the playoff loss to Tampa Bay, but did not play on a single defensive snap the entire year. He was Washington's primary kickoff returner for a second time in three seasons. But again, nary a defensive snap for Danny Johnson in the 2020 season. Question number two for the Washington football team at corner in training camp. Is Jimmy Moreland still Washington's top slot corner? So one of the things that doesn't get nearly enough attention is how well Moreland played as Washington's slot corner last season. Moreland in the 2020 regular season played a bunch. He played on 57.32% of Washington's defensive snaps in playing in 16 games. And per the NFL's next-gen stats, Moreland was the number three slot corner in the NFL. Jimmy Moreland ranked number three among all qualified corners in slot coverage success rate, which is the percentage of targets as the nearest defender that result in a successful play for the defense. Moreland's slot coverage success rate for the NFL's next-gen stats last regular season was 57.6%. Number one was Chauncey Gardner-Johnson of the New Orleans Saints at 59.5%. Number two was Jordan Lewis of the Dallas Cowboys at 59.1%. Jimmy Moreland was number three. Additionally, Washington as a team last regular season was number two in the NFL in pass defense per football outsiders DVOA metric. So I have zero problem with Jimmy Moreland again being Washington's slot corner. But it's worth noting that Washington this offseason has signed two guys with extensive slot corner experience, Bobby McCain and Daryl Roberts. Now we just talked about Roberts. He to me is a depth piece, but McCain is interesting. So yes, Bobby McCain was most recently a free safety for the Miami Dolphins. But one of the reasons that Washington signed McCain is his, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Exactly. McCain for the Dolphins played both free safety and nickel corner. In fact, McCain's best single season overall grade with the Dolphins per pro football focus was 76.4 in the 2017 regular season when he was a nickel corner. Additionally, how about this? And this may be nothing or this may very much be something. The Washington football team's official website, WashingtonFootball.com, on its roster page, lists McCain as a corner, not as a safety. Next to McCain's name in the position column is CB, not S. Could mean nothing, could simply be an oversight, or could very much mean something. I mean, you've got to think that the person who maintains the roster page on WashingtonFootball.com checks with someone in the know on which position to list a guy as playing if there's ambiguity with that guy, right? Something to think about. But yeah, go to WashingtonFootball.com, then go to the roster page. Bobby McCain is a CB, not an S. Also, WashingtonFootball.com has come out with a preview of Washington at corner and included McCain in that conversation. Again, something to think about here. And question number three for the Washington football team at corner in training camp, do we get any indications that more man coverage is coming? Obviously, the ultimate tell for this question will be in the regular season, but this is something to be thinking about here. Washington's past defense last regular season ended up being great. 
Yes, the pass defense struggled in a loss to Tom Brady and the Bucs in the wildcard game. But like I said, Washington as a team last regular season, number two in the NFL in pass defense for football outsiders DVOA metric. And Washington last regular season was number six in the NFL in third down defense. Washington did all of this playing a lot of zone coverage. Washington secondary last regular season for football outsiders played man coverage just 24% of the time. That ranked 25th in the NFL in terms of highest usage of man coverage. A man who thrived in this system, of course, was Ronald Darby. He ended up being healthy and great last season. His loan season with Washington got himself a big money free agent contract with the Denver Broncos this past March. Washington, of course, spent good money to sign William Jackson III as an unrestricted free agent in March. Jackson is known for excelling in man coverage. And so are we going to see more man coverage this coming season? I tend to think yes. I mean, understand that Jack Del Rio during his time as Denver Broncos defensive coordinator used man coverage quite a bit. Jack was the Broncos defensive coordinator for three seasons, 2012 through 2014. The Broncos defenses in those seasons were really good. The Broncos NFL rankings in total defense per DVOA in those regular seasons, number five in the NFL in 2012, number 15 in 2013, but number four in 2014. So given that, given what Jackson can do, given potentially what someone like Benjamin St. Juice can do, and given that it's not like Kendall Fuller and Jimmy Moreland can't play man coverage, I do think that we're going to see more man coverage this coming season. I'm pumped to see that. And while I don't expect Jack and his players to flat out tell us during training camp that the team is going to be playing more man coverage, nor should they tell us, by the way, I do think that we could see signs of more man coverage during practices. We could receive hints of more man coverage during press conferences. These things have a way of getting out. These things have a way of getting loose. You like the juice, eh? <laughs> yeah, the juice is good, eh? Yes, I like the juice. The juice could be loose this coming season. And speaking of getting loose, the Orioles are getting loose. A three-game winning streak now. Yes, the Orioles on Monday night in the win column for a third consecutive game. And the Orioles again in the win column. Exactly, Joe Angel. A 6-1 win at the Tampa Bay Rays in game one of a three-game series. This off the O's having won two or three at the Kansas City Royals over the weekend. So the O's now an American League worst 31 and 62. And the story of Monday night's win, Spencer Watkins, who was good for a third time in as many starts. So the O's on June 30th selected the contract of Watkins from AAA Norfolk. He was taken by the Detroit Tigers in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. He made his major league debut in a relief appearance for the O's on July 2nd. So drafted in the 30th round in 2014, toils in the minors for years, doesn't end up making his MLB debut until July 2nd of 2021. And Watkins now has been terrific in three starts. The Orioles starting pitching, as you likely know, has been brutal this season. Any young pitcher or younger pitcher who shows promise is going to get a shot. And Watkins is taking advantage of his. Watkins in this 6-1 win at the Rays on Monday night, one run in six innings. He had seven strikeouts. 
He gave up four hits, a double and three singles. He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. Watkins was good again. His previous start, a 7-5-10 inning loss to the Chicago White Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on July 11th. One run, four and a third innings. Okay, I mean, that's not a lot of length, but all things considered, that's not terrible, especially considering what other Orioles starting pitchers have provided this season. And Watkins first start, a 7-5 win over the Toronto Blue Jays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on July 6th. He in that game, one run in five innings. I mean, it's all relative. I understand that. But Spencer Watkins is doing a lot more than I think anyone could have reasonably hoped for. So nice job by him. Really nice job in this win at a good team in Tampa Bay on Monday night. Also good on Monday night, Austin Hayes and Trey Mancini. Austin Hayes was the Orioles starting left fielder at number one batter, had a double and two singles. He had a leadoff full count single in the Orioles two run first despite having been down in the count at 1.02, had a two-out single in the top of the fifth, and had a two-out ground rule double in the Orioles' four-run sixth. And Trey Mancini was the Orioles' starting DH and number two batter. He had two singles in the walk, had a single on a 1-2 pitch in the Orioles' two-run first, had a one-out single on a 1-2 pitch in the top of the third, had a two-out full count walk in the top of the fifth. Game two for the O's at the Rays, Tuesday night at 7-10, and looky-looky, who will be the starting pitcher for the O's in that game, John Means. Yes, John Means will be back. John Means has been on the 10-day injured list since June 6th. He's been out with a left shoulder strain. And remember, before the injury trouble started, John Means was a Cy Young contender, okay? And I'm not overstating things in saying that. John Means, over his first eight starts this season, had an ERA of 121 and a whip of 0.71. Means in the Orioles' 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. On Cinco de Mayo, threw a no-hitter. But then came the struggles. He struggled to varying degrees in three of his next four starts and then went on the 10-day IL with this left shoulder strain. Again, that was back on June 6th, but the return set to take place Tuesday night at the Rays. Going to be good to see John Means back. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 105, will be a big show. Special guest, former NFL executive Joe Banner. He'll be going in-depth on the Washington football team. Joe worked for the Philadelphia Eagles for nearly two decades. He served as the Eagles president. He was in the Eagles front office when Ron Rivera was the Eagles linebackers coach from 1999 through 2003. So we'll get Joe's takes on Ron, all that has happened with Dan Snyder, Washington signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, and much more. Also, I'll continue my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp. And I'll preview Wednesday night's expansion draft from a Capitals perspective for the NHL's Seattle Kraken. Release the Kraken. Uh, Very interesting who the Capitals did and did not protect for the expansion draft. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Sometimes when you're a head coach and a second and third time head coach, um, I don't think you work as hard. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. 
Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.